Hey guys, Noor here. I hope you're doing okay and that you're staying home and staying safe. So, good news. We have a new podcast and it's called Economize Me. And Eitan wrote it and he's the host of the podcast and I produced it and edited it. And um, it tells the story of Eitan, uh, who knows nothing about economy and he embarks on a journey to find out some basic concepts about economy. So... Now you get to listen to the first episode here. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe and tune in. Just search Economize Me on your favorite podcast app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever. Spread the word and we hope you enjoy it. Listening to CNN Money or reading an article in Forbes or The Economist. Most of the time, I feel like a colorblind chimp trying to solve a Rubik's Cube. The world of money has always seemed pretty daunting to me. You see, I spent my college years studying the history and theories of film and television. The closest I came to economics was the big short, and it wasn't particularly enjoyable. Phrases like collateral debt obligations and price elasticity would honestly make my brain age. But this was all long before I bought the worst three haircuts I'd ever had in my life. You see, I was a student, strapped for cash, making ends meet. So when I saw that sign, haircuts, buy three, get one free, you can bet I went for it. Obviously, I should have stopped after the first haircut. Every hair on my head must have been a different length. But when I needed another haircut a few weeks later, you can guess exactly where I went. I ended up spending the next few months with my head looking like a mop top and a mohawk had given birth to Siamese mullets. And it really got me thinking, how did I end up here? And then it hit me. I had made a commitment, an investment towards a free haircut, and I wasn't about to let it go to waste. If at any point I backed out, I'd be throwing money down the drain. At least, that's what I thought. That's when I realized that every day-to-day economic choice I make consists of so much more than I'm aware of. I might like to think I'm making sound financial decisions, But in reality, there's a lot more to it. So I decided to try and shed some light on this and discover how and why am I spending my money and how does that influence the way I behave. Today, we're going to be talking to Professor Barry Schwartz from Berkeley's Business School. An example I use with, with students a lot is if you're watching a movie and it's terrible, you have no problem turning it off. If you buy a ticket... To see a movie and you go into the theater and it's terrible, you have a very hard time walking out. And also, a short history lesson. We have made a national pledge to help South Vietnam defend its independence. And I intend to keep that promise. I'm your host, Eitan Weinstein, and this is Economize Me. Economize Me is sponsored by eToro, a trusted leader in the crypto sphere with an online community of millions of traders from around the world. One of their coolest features is Copy Trader, which allows you to copy other successful traders on eToro in just one click to easily automate your trading. Check it out at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O.com. Now for a quick disclaimer. 
All opinions expressed on this podcast are for educational and entertainment purposes only. They do not imply any endorsements and should not be taken as specific investment advice as you will be solely responsible for your own investments. Looking back on that half a year I spent with the most awful haircuts you can imagine, I thought to myself, there's got to be an explanation behind this. I mean, I knew I'd acted irrationally, but was I the only one? Was this just a personal slip-up, or could it possibly be some kind of phenomenon? And then, one afternoon, I was watching Seinfeld, and there it was. It was like I was watching myself on TV. The episode's called The Strike. If you haven't seen it, watch it. Elaine decides not to eat at Monk's Cafe because she's headed to Atomic Sub. She's got a card they stamp every time she eats there. Buy 24, get one free. Eventually, Elaine loses the card and begins this journey trying to find it. Every step of the way, instead of cutting her losses and calling it quits, Elaine just keeps on going. She just can't give up that free sub. Finally, I had absolution. I wasn't the only idiot. With this backwards vote of confidence, I decided I was going to get some answers. Presumption in economics that people are rational agents. That's Professor Barry Schwartz. He's got a PhD in psychology. He teaches at the Haas School of Business at Berkeley and studies, among other things, the connection between economics and psychology. Which means they know what their goals are. They gather information about how to achieve those goals. They assess that information accurately. They gather all the information that's relevant, and then they calculate how much benefit they'll get from this, that, or the other course of action. And they always choose the path that will maximize the utility that they achieve. They obviously weren't talking about me and my haircuts, or Elaine and her sub sandwiches. But luckily, a new field has evolved from classical economics. It's called behavioral economics, and it does a pretty good job explaining why this idea of people acting in a totally and perfectly rational way is, in fact, irrational. You may think that you are particularly handicapped in this regard. Everybody is handicapped in this regard. Richard Thaler, who won the Nobel Prize in economics uh, a couple of years ago, uh, in, in one of his books, he makes a distinction between econs and humans. And so his point is that, you know, econs are humans too, which means that when they're doing economics, they behave in one way in, in creating models of human beings. But when they're actually acting as human beings, they violate the model just as much as everybody else does. So this is an accurate description of nobody. Now, for many, many years, the way economists would respond to that is they'd say, well, there's, there's noise in the system. Yes, people are imperfectly rational. We'll build our models on the assumption that people are rational actors, but we know they're imperfectly rational. But all this does is add a little bit of noise. Nothing, nothing about what we say is changed, except it's more variable because people behave imperfectly. So we can continue building the models we build, and we acknowledge that people are only imperfectly behaving in this way. And what what uh, the work of Kahneman and Tversky, who basically launched the field that became known as behavioral economics, showed is that that's not true. It isn't just noise. People, all masses of people, systematically deviate from this model. And when masses of people are all deviating in the same way, the models fail to give an accurate description of reality. 
Professor Schwartz is referring to Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Kahneman was also awarded the Nobel Prize in economics, but we'll get to him and Tversky later. First, back to my haircuts and Elaine's sub sandwiches. Behavioral economics has to be my best bet at explaining this seemingly irrational phenomenon. As a matter of fact, it turns out it's not all that uncommon of a phenomenon. Not necessarily with haircuts or sub sandwiches, but when it comes to the money that we've already spent. Keyword, already. Apparently, I had fallen prey to what behavioral economists call the sunk cost fallacy. You're embarked on a project and you work and you work and you work and you work and it becomes clear to you that it's not going to be as good a result as you hoped, or it becomes clear to you that there's something better out there. So even when you finish, you're not gonna be successful, and yet nonetheless you persist until it's finished. You've invested so much time and effort, you're gonna stick with it until the end. Uh, uh, example I use with, with students a lot is, if you're watching a, move, a streaming video, streaming movie, and it's terrible, you have no problem turning it off. If you buy a ticket to see a movie and you go into the theater and it's terrible, you have a very hard time walking out. You see, one idea classical economists had was that we'll ignore what they call sunk costs, money we've already spent, when considering whether or not to spend more money. But as Professor Schwartz pointed out, that idea is obviously wrong. We sometimes, if not often, consider the money we already spent. A lot of the times that money can actually push us to spend even more money, or rather waste more money. There's a reason we have the saying, throwing good money after bad. So it's a phenomenon. It has a name, the sunk cost fallacy. But I still had one big question. Why? Why do we act in this irrational way? Let's do a little thought experiment. Imagine you owe me $3,000. Now I'll give you two options. Either you pay me the money now, and we call it even, or we'll play a little game. I'll write a number down between one and five on a piece of paper. And if you guess it correctly, you don't have to pay me anything. But if you don't, you'll have to pay me $4,000. So again, Either $3,000 now, or we play my game, and if you lose, you pay me $4,000, but if you win, you don't pay me anything. If you want to think about it in terms of probability, option A is a 100% chance of losing $3,000, and option B is an 80% chance of losing $4,000, and a 20% chance of losing nothing. Think about it for a second. Now, I'm assuming that you picked option B with a small chance of losing nothing. Don't worry, I'm not reading your mind. I'll explain in a second. But before that, let's do another quick one. Kind of similar, only this time I owe you the money. So here are the options. Either I give you $3,000 now, and you get to keep them, or we play my game. But this time you write the number down, remember one to five, and if I guess it, I don't have to pay anything. In terms of probability, this time, we're talking about option A being a 100% chance of getting your $3,000 from me, and option B being an 80% chance of getting $4,000 from me, and a 20% chance of getting nothing. Again, think about it for a second. It probably isn't going to take you that long. 
This time you probably chose option A. At least, most people do. This experiment was done back in 1979 by those two guys that Professor Schwartz mentioned, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. The results were surprising. 92% of people chose option B in the first scenario. To remind you, that means that 92% of people were willing to take the risk of paying an extra thousand bucks for the 20% chance of not paying anything at all. But in the second scenario, 80% of people chose to take the surefire bet and walk away with $3,000. Hardly anyone wanted to roll the dice at a shot to win $4,000. Suddenly, people weren't such hotshot gamblers. What Kahneman and Tversky realized from this was that when people are at a loss, they are much bigger risk takers. Why? Because we are naturally loss averse. We are terrified of losses. When we find ourselves at a loss, we're willing to take big risks to try and recoup that loss. But when we have something in hand, we're much bigger wimps, or as they put it, risk averse. Suppose you, um, you have to sell stock to buy a new car. You have one stock that you bought at 50, and now it's at 40. You've lost $10 a share. You have another stock that you bought at 30, and now it's at 40. So you've gained $10 a share, right? Both stocks are worth the same amount, $40 a share. The question is, which stock do you sell? The one that's gone up 10 points or the one that's gone down 10 points? Now, what would a rational person do? A rational person might say, well, is the stock that's gone up going to keep going up? If so, I'll hold it. If the stock that's gone down going to keep going down, okay, then I'll sell it. And then you ask, what are the tax consequences? If I sell a stock that's gone up, I have to pay tax on my profits. If I sell a stock that's gone down, I don't have to pay tax. I, in fact, I can get a tax deduction for my losses. What do people actually do? They sell the stock that has gone up and they keep the stock that has gone down. And the question is why? And the answer is, you haven't lost anything on the stock that's gone down until you sell it. Now, it's important to note that in both examples, each option was a reflection of the other. In Kahneman and Tversky's experiment, it's $3,000 of gains or losses with the option of an additional $1,000 of gains or losses. In Professor Schwartz's example, both options are worth 40 bucks, one after a loss and the other after a gain. Kahneman and Tversky called this the reflection effect, and it drove their point home. The scenarios are basically the same. What changed were the prospects, hence the name prospect theory. People, generally speaking, make decisions based on the prospect of gains and losses rather than the odds at hand. That's why the gambler at the horse race keeps throwing money down the drain. That's why we have sayings like bad money after good. And that might be why I spent a few months with those ridiculous haircuts. When I bought that first haircut, I was immediately put at a loss. I had spent money that I was never getting back. And once that happened, my mindset shifted. All of a sudden, I was willing to take more risks. But there was still something missing. I might have been in a daredevil mindset, but I wasn't really in the same situation as a horse race gambler. I wasn't really taking on more risk in the off chance of winning big on my returns. There was no money to be made back by going to get another awful haircut. So why did I return to the same barber? And then I thought, maybe, just maybe, 
it wasn't only about the money. On November 22, 1963, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, the 35th president of the United States of America, was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. Most of you probably know this, and most of you are probably wondering, what in the world does my haircut have to do with the assassination of JFK? Well, it doesn't really, but what happened next is a whole other story. We have made a national pledge to help South Vietnam defend its independence, and I intend to keep that promise. I have today ordered to Vietnam the Air Mobile Division and certain other forces which will raise our fighting strength from 75,000 to 125,000 men. There are many sincere and patriotic Americans who harbor doubts about sustaining the commitment that three presidents and a half a million of our young men have made. You see, on November 22, 1963, Lyndon B. Johnson became the 36th president of the United States, and thus began a quick and steep escalation of America's commitment to the war in Vietnam. Arguably, to raise the stakes quite a lot, one reason the United States persisted in Vietnam long after it was clear to everyone that the war could not be won is that if they left, then the people who had died would have, quote, died in vain. And so you sacrifice another 20,000 lives so that the first 30,000 lives will not have been wasted. In fact, you'd hear politicians say this. We have to justify the loss of blood and treasure by expending more blood and treasure. And, you know, it's one thing if you think maybe you can win, but, you know, the documents that came out after the fact made it clear that nobody thought this was a winnable war, and nonetheless, we persisted. In 1965, then Undersecretary of State George Ball wrote a memo to President Johnson. You can probably find it online pretty easily, but just to give you a taste, he wrote, quote, Our involvement will be so great that we cannot, without national humiliation, stop short of achieving our complete objectives. Of the two possibilities, I think humiliation would be more likely than the achievement of our objectives, even after we have paid terrible costs, end quote. So what might have led LBJ to commit all those troops to a war that seemed unwinnable, even at the beginning? Perhaps it was part optimism, part conviction, maybe even part legitimate disagreement with the naysayers. But perhaps, somewhere there in the mix, there was something else at play. Enter the self-justification theory. This is the second psychological theory that might explain the sunk cost fallacy, and might shed some light on why I got those awful haircuts. In 1981, a professor at Berkeley, Barry Staw, published a paper titled The Escalation of Commitment to a Course of Action. As part of his research, Staw conducted a simulated experiment. He asked business school students to assume the role of chief financial officer for a fake company. They were asked to invest a sum of money in one of two different R&D ventures. In the next stage of the experiment, they were notified how their venture did, whether it did poorly or whether it did well. Then they were given the opportunity to invest yet another sum of money. Here's the catch. There was another group of students who entered into the experiment at this stage. These students weren't responsible for a first investment. 
but they were asked to invest another sum of money. Either continue the company's investment in a venture that they were told did poorly, or invest in the original alternative. What Stahl found out was that, generally speaking, if the student hadn't been the one to make the original investment, they were more willing to take a corrective course of action. But the students who had invested in a bad venture invested in it again. They chose to double down on their bad investment. This indicated that maybe these students were trying to redeem their initial decisions. The students were trying to ultimately prove that they had made the right choice. In other words, they were seeking self-justification, and their continued investment was their way of saying, mark my words, this will be worth it. Now, of course, it's important to understand that LBJ's considerations, as well as all the other American presidents involved in the Vietnam War, might have also been strategic, political, ideological, but we're not talking about the Vietnam War here. We're talking about your wallet or your budget if you're running a company. When it comes to financial decisions, you should have only one consideration in mind. Assuming, of course, that you're acting in a moral, ethical, and maybe even polite manner. And that one consideration is economic gains. I guess the lesson to be learned is that behavioral economics teaches us a lot about the way we act, almost instinctively, in financial decision-making situations. The sunk cost fallacy is only the tip of the iceberg. But that doesn't mean we should abandon the classical economic models and ideas. Maybe we should hold them up as a sort of ideal, while behavioral economics can be our practical guide, instructing us on how to navigate the stormy waters of our fickle minds in order to become that perfectly rational econ. Sounds nice, at least. So how can you avoid being sucked in by sunk cost? Just like any good clickbait article, we now present you with the incontestable, infallible, invaluable three ways to avoid being sunk by sunk cost. I should probably mention I'm not an expert in any way and you should follow my advice at your own risk. First, be honest with yourself. You have to ask yourself, and really take the time to consider this, whether or not you are acting because of some sort of insecurity or personal attachment. Maybe you hope to prove someone wrong, hope to redeem yourself or your image. Maybe it's not that personal, but you're just trying to recoup a really tough loss. You lost a lot of money and you just feel like you have to get it back. Whatever it is, you've got to sit yourself down, look yourself in the eyes and ask yourself, am I making a purely economic choice? Is this a financial decision or am I involving emotions? Now, emotions might not always be bad, but you have to be honest about them so that you can actually consider whether or not they should play a role in your decision making. Next, number two. Track your investments and your opportunity costs. Basically, keep track of what you're spending and consider what other things you might have been able to do with that money. It'll put things into perspective. If I had done this when I got those haircuts, I might have been able to realize right after the first one that instead of another two bad haircuts, I could have gotten one pretty nice one. And if I really thought about it, I'd have realized that would have made me much happier. Finally, three, look ahead. 
Forget I coulda, shoulda, woulda, and set your sights on the future. What's done is done. There's no going back. Money spent is money spent. All you can do to really recoup your losses is think about future investments and future gains. Forget sunk costs and keep your eyes on the prize. That's the end of this episode. I want to take this opportunity to thank the amazing team behind the scenes. This podcast could not have happened without Naor Menninger, who produced and edited the show. A big shout out to Sharon Minkovich, Adam Slashevsky, and Hadar Karen from eToro, who guided us through this process and helped us curate this podcast. A huge thank you to all of our amazing guests for taking the time to be a part of Economize Me. And of course, last but not least, thank you all for listening and making this podcast possible. See you next time.